Good evening, everyone. I'm John Podesta. I'm the president of the Center for American Progress. And I want to welcome you here uh, this evening. We're very honored to have Gwen Eiffel here to talk about her book. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have the pleasure of doing something that we are joking in the back that, that I never get to do, which is I get to ask her questions uh, about the breakthrough politics and race in the age of Obama. And uh, I'm going to, uh, I, I just want to say that uh, having, having looked at this, this book, I think it really brings uh, Gwen's talents to bear because it really is, it's a book of reporting. Uh, and uh, she's gone around uh, and interviewed uh, uh, literally uh, probably 100 people or more uh, to try to, to, to understand uh, not just the Obama phenomena, but the breakthrough of, Afri of uh, African American politicians. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of them as we, as we uh, go through the evening. I'm going to get to ask those questions. I'm going to have the chance to open things up to you to uh, ask questions. At the end of, the, uh, of this session, you're going to get to go buy Gwen's book. And, uh, and that's, that's uh, the other part of my job, which is, to, which is to pitch it, because it really is a, I learned a lot. It's an excellent read. I think it really has a lot of uh, interesting observations uh, about uh, where we stand in politics today in America. Uh, for, I, I think all of you know uh, that Gwen is the host of Washington Week and Review and is a senior correspondent for the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer. Uh, she was born in New York City, and uh, she first started working for the Boston Herald American uh, uh, back in the 1970s and then went to the Baltimore Evening Sun, the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, NBC, before she landed at PBS and, and found her... Uh, her uh, niche in public journalism, where she's doing uh, tremendous uh, work there. Um, I actually wanted to start the conversation uh, by taking you back to the Boston Herald American, which <laughs> probably uh, you might be surprised by, which is uh, because you, you began your journalism career uh, in, at a time when uh, busing was, was uh, uh, on the the controversy around busing was on fire in in in, in Boston, and there was tremendous uh, uh, consternation both in the politics and the, and the, and racial attitudes in the city. And I wonder if you could maybe just take us back to that time a little bit and and talk about what politics felt like uh, covering things then. Uh, I actually worked in a campaign in 1971, if my memory serves me, uh, for a guy named Tom Atkins, who was the head of the NAACP, ran for mayor of Boston. So I, I experienced. <laughs> How did that work out? I experienced Boston <laughs> racial politics. Yeah. He got elected citywide, but mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that because I think uh, for the audience to remember how far we've come from 1971 till 2008. Well, you know, I thanks everybody for coming. Um, I really have to say that. Oh no, you didn't have to do that again. That's okay. I'll let you know when. Um, when I when I graduated from college, you know, reporting is really just gathering string over time and getting little bits and pieces of information and knitting it together and telling a story. And I didn't realize at the time that my string gathering for this book started when I graduated from college in 1977. In Boston, as John was saying, it was there was a lot of trauma. And my first my actual first writing job at the Boston Herald American was writing about food because it was the only writing job that was open. So I learned how to cook, because I didn't know how. It was an interesting experiment. And I poisoned people somewhere along the way, but we don't know. We don't talk about that much. 
But what happened then was I got out and got the real writing job was to be a reporter covering the school committee. And that was my first taste, unbeknownst to me, of politics. That's when I realized everything is politics, whether you go to school or not, whether your kids get an education, whether you get to keep your home or not, whether you get a home or not. Everything is politics. Um, my first experience covering the Boston School Committee at a time when they were always debating something, they were, something was always fraught. My first experience was the day they fired the superintendent and I didn't even know. I was hmm. And some reporter to whom I still owe my, owe my career for the Christian Science Monitor tapped me on the shoulder and let me know that maybe I had just missed the story, which turned <laughs> out to be the lead story of the next day's newspaper. But what had happened that I, when I wasn't listening was something very complicated and something very political. And that was a lot of verbiage was tossed around, and it was actually firing a guy who was effecting change. And that became the theme throughout my career. When I was paying attention, I always noticed that there was something shifting. And then when something shifted, when there was a, a challenge, a grab for power, and when new people came in charge, whether it was the Irish take, kicking the Brahmins out in Boston or African Americans in Prince George's County, taking over from the whites who always run the county. Everywhere I went in my career, I discovered there was this friction which would build between the old way and the new way. And so by the time I sat down and started to write this book, I realized there was a continuum in my career of these kinds of evidence, of this kind of, of, this kind of behavior, all the way through up to my first presidential campaign with Jesse Jackson. Um, where that, that was when I worked at the Washington Post, and my job was basically to to go cover whoever was about to fail. And so every time a politician saw me coming, they'd go, oh. And uh, Jesse Jackson was the last man standing that year. So I went and covered him. But I got to watch kind of race-driven politics up close. So all in all, going back to that first day falling asleep in the school committee meeting, um, I realized I was watching something build. And, and uh, was there anything that could have foreshadowed Deval Patrick getting elected governor Nothing that, that at all. you saw there? Nothing at all. Uh, when, I, when I lived in Boston, there were, the chance that they'd have a black governor in my lifetime seemed as remote <laughs> as the chance that the Red Sox would win the World Series. <laughs> 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 but but it, was, it was remarkable because it was a very um, difficult city racially. And maybe, it was, maybe because Deval Patrick was an outsider and had not come up with all the limitations that are placed on people who've always been there, maybe that was what made it possible for him to get elected. Because he's from Chicago. He's from Chicago, South Side. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, y y one of the things that, that uh, you end with is, is you, can't, you can't settle on any single definition of uh, no. breakthrough politician or break, uh, uh, yeah, breakthrough politician. Uh, does Deval does fit that mold? I thought I, I had it figured out before I started to write the book, which is the problem with reporting, which is it turns out that reporting changes the outcome if you're paying attention. And in this case, I thought I had it figured out that it was a Ivy League, 40-something, basically a Barack Obama wannabe, <laughs> and that they all would, were the same. And they were all benefiting from the civil rights movement, the gains of the civil rights movement. And that's true. That did remain true. But then I had to expand it to think of different ways of doing this and other ways in which this was true as Corey well. Cory Booker, Archer Corey Booker, Davis. Who is, who is a mayor of a city, was raised in the lily-white suburbs, in fact, in a town his parents integrated by, by, with, a, with a lawsuit. And, and, and he was under 40 years old, chose, instead of going to Wall Street, chose to go into the inner city. And he's brilliant. And you think to yourself, okay, well, he doesn't quite fit that mold, but 
What about Artur Davis? He's a congressman from Birmingham, Alabama, and he truly is an example of the audacity of hope because he thinks he's going to be governor of Alabama in 2010, which I, I never say never anymore because I didn't see Barack Obama coming. So anything is possible. But the idea that in our lifetimes, the, gu the gubernatorial office that was occupied by George Wallace might even have a chance of being now occupied by a 40-year-old black man boggles the mind. So there was a theme that was playing out a lot of similarities among them that went far beyond what I thought they would be. I, th I think you quote Natalie Davis, who's, who yeah. ran for the Senate, as saying that Artur wants to make history. And exactly. Did I get the quote? He does. He's, he's, and, he's probably, he's in, in fact, when I first interviewed him for the book, I w planned to, to make him a minor character, just someone who I, who I was curious what he thought. When I went back and read the first interview with him, maybe a couple months later, I realized he was just so much more interesting than I thought, and I wanted to know more. And, and is, that a, is that a characteristic that runs through, is there a, a powerful driver to make history amongst these candidates? Or they just want to get elected, like well, every other politician in it's America? It's something in between those two. They definitely, definitely want to get elected. But they also definitely are, one, one of the things they have in common is that people always tell them they can't do it, and that pisses them off. So they think, okay, I'm going to do it even more. And Deval Patrick's wife said that to me. Don't ever tell Deval that it's something he can't do because that'll make him decide he's going to do it. And the same thing happened with a lot of these candidates, not just these four, but a lot of them run first and lose. Barack Obama ran against right. Bobby Rush and lost. And it's the losing that teaches them how to do it and how to work around it. And as, as a result, they end up getting even, reaching even further and figuring out ways around the entrenched establishment, whether it's a black establishment or, or a white establishment, that has told them in the way, over the years, this is how you do it. The, the black civil rights establishment carved out, you know, gerrymandered districts where they put as many black people in them as possible, and that's, there. voila, you had the Congressional Black Caucus. Here is a new generation of young black politicians who are saying to themselves, I don't need to win just by winning black votes. I want to find a way to build coalitions. And that's the 2000 generation way of looking at, at, at black advancement. And let, let's stick with this for a second. Uh, in the because you kind of end on this gerrymandering point, uh, gerrymandering. Some people call it the Voting Rights Act, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to give minority representation uh, right. to to districts that have historically disenfranchised people, particularly Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. You, you come close to the, uh, the idea that maybe. We're moving beyond that. So Julia, you didn't Julius say Chambers that. comes close to it. And I, I was struck that Julius Chambers, who was for years ran the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and, and that role was the architect in many ways of the, of, in, and the, of the enforcement parts of the Voting Rights Act. When he said to me, perhaps the Corys and the Arturs, or maybe he said the Obamas, maybe they are the ones now who are changing the way we look about, about it and changing the need for that kind of enforcement. The truth is, the Voting Rights Act and a lot of, uh, act, uh, of, of acts which um, guaranteed access and accommodation were the first breakthrough. They were what allowed people onto the stage. And what this generation of young black elected officials are doing now is taking advantage of that. They've walked through the door already. They've gotten the education. And they're saying, OK, now what else can we do with it? And it doesn't necessarily involve laws or enforcement, but actually taking action. And so it it's, doesn't mean that it's outdated yet, just like some people want to say affirmative action is outdated because we have a black president. I don't know about all that. But I do know that it means that people have to take stock and decide 
whether it works. The, um, oh, he's a good reporter. <laughs> <laughs> you saw that, huh? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, one of the terms you co coin is sandpaper politics. Maybe you don't coin it, I, but. I stole it from might, someone, I'm you sure. Probably, uh, uh, you talk about sandpaper politics, which is friction, uh, not just between whites and blacks, men and women, but between uh, uh, different generations of voters and particularly the friction between the older generation, the civil right. rights generation of leadership, number of whom endorsed Senator Clinton in the in the in the process of election. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, in in that context, uh, what's the what was? Do you think it, it was hardest for, to overcome? What frictions in the system? Uh, when you think of these breakthrough leaders that they have to overcome? The friction is almost always about ceding power. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand. Malcolm X said that. So what happens is once, especially intra-racially, once black folk had some power, they had some seats and they had some uh, committee chairmanships, along come these little upstarts who say, well, okay, that's very nice and I have great respect for you, sir, but uh, it's my turn. Well, almost in every case, people told them, well, I don't know. Well, so there's one story in the book. Benjamin Jealous, who's a 35-year-old new head right. of the NAACP, tells a story about going to the 1993 March on Washington for Jobs, Peace, and Justice, and that on the big stage, the iconic Lincoln Memorial stage, were all of the great civil rights lions speaking. On the baby stage by the Washington Monument were all the kids. And it was like, the, it, and they, were they were resentful that they weren't being given the big stage. And, he recalls Julian Bond saying to him that day, if, you have, if I have something that you want and you perceive it, that you need it, you should have to snatch it from me. So what has happened is this generation has proceeded to go about snatching things. In Artur Davis's case, for instance, in Alabama, there's a guy named Joe Reed, mm -hmm. who's the great, you know, old man of black politics in, in, in Alabama. First time I ever met him was going there with presidential candidates. That was always the button you pushed when you went to... Alabama. And Joe Reed uh, is in his 70s now. He's probably responsible for every single black elected official who ever came out of Alabama. But Artur Davis decided he was running not almost against him. He was going to run without his blessing and because he was taking on an, an entrenched incumbent black member of Congress. And he did it then and he's going to do it again now and he did it by endorsing Obama when Joe Reed was with Hillary Clinton like a lot of old school political leaders. And Joe Reed said to me that he kind of resented this. Who are these youngsters doing this? Why wouldn't they wait their turn? So it's a fundamental difference in approach that if you want the power, you have to take it. And in the case of every single breakthrough candidate I talked to, these four, as well as scores of others, they always had to take it. Reverend Sharpton went, went into that race and campaign against uh, our tour. Yes, interesting. And, and, he also and went to New Jersey and did the same thing to uh, a pretty explicitly racial uh, argument. Everyone who's not our, everyone who's our color is not our kind, he said. Yeah. When I asked him why he said that, he said to me, "Well, I have some relatives who asked me to come and do that." I mean, he completely <laughs> he completely just washed his hands of everything he didn't said, but what he was representing uh, Al Sharpton was was the way it had always been done. And these guys were coming in and saying, no, um, we don't know you. The, 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 the Gerald Reeds and Al Sharptons of the world are the um, kinds who say, it's like Chicago politics, we don't want nobody, nobody sent. Yeah. They didn't know who these kids were. Who sent them? 
who gave them permission to step up? And that's that's the friction right there. Um, the the has Obama's success diminished the older generation's hold on the argument, at least, if not power? They don't think so. Uh, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton told me separately, because they don't do much together, truthfully. They told me separately, <laughs> it's true, they told me separately that they believe that their, their role is even enhanced now by having a black president, because someone has to be the agitator on the outside. Um, now this is Jesse Jackson Sr., whose son Jesse Jackson Jr. basically said to me, volunteered to me, pointed out he wanted to be on the record saying to me that he believed his father's generation was unaccountable and that the everything is a civil rights issue had to go away. So, okay, fine, whatever. I asked Reverend Jackson, what do you think about his son's point of view? And he said, well, I encourage disagreement in our house. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be at that Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> but then he went on to say, he is the negotiator and I'm the agitator. And that's actually not a bad role for the older generation or for another, or for another group of outsiders to have. Someone is supposed to be holding the leader's feet to the fire. And that's what they see their role is. What's the, what is, um, we've kind of gotten at this a little bit, but is there, is this the, is the Obama model the model for success for, for this new generation of African-American politicians? It's who got part it? of the model for success. I mean, Barack Obama had a lot of separate and specific skills, um, which everybody doesn't have. But to the extent that the model is challenging the powers that be, not being told no, finding a way to build coalitions across racial lines, and even if I, the mayor of Columbus, Ohio, the mayor of Buffalo, New York, described to me this kind of inside-out way of viewing civil rights politics. Instead of saying, I'm going to be a champion of black issues, they say, I'm going to champion health care. And if I get health care passed, it will disproportionately affect people of color because they disproportionately suffer. So that's my way of getting, doing things for my people. They, they, they say they're going to find a way to... He, Mayor Coleman in, in Columbus, Ohio, said he's going to build bike paths. Well, bike paths will help everyone in the city, but the infrastructure that it builds will help people in the inner core who need to benefit from those jobs and from the revitalization that that will bring about. So it's not as like I'm going to go out here and I'm going to do I'm going to campaign on behalf of black people anymore. It's building, and especially if you're running for a citywide or a statewide or a nationwide office. You're not going to get elected just by winning voters' votes from people who look like you. You're going to get elected by making everyone look at you and say, I trust this person to believe that, to care about the same things I care about. And that's what all politicians want. You, you um, uh, act, David Axelrod is kind of quoted as saying they were, were trying to run a race neutral campaign, but you uh, note that it wasn't a colorblind campaign. No. Not at all. We'll talk about that a little bit. Well, both Axelrod and David Plouffe are fairly honest about saying they didn't really, they would have been happy if no one ever mentioned Barack Obama was black. It would have, not, it would have thrilled them to death. Because a couple, couple of things, one of them made sense, which is it was fairly obvious. The other is that, <laughs> the other is that the more you emphasize his race to a majority audience, the more people thought, yeah, he's not like me. And their goal in this race, whether it was talking about his heritage or talking about his religion or talking about anything was to make him seem as much like voters who looked at him as something alien as possible. So the, the key was to diffuse the notion of alienness 
Now, this didn't work so much when Jeremiah Wright popped up. So if it had not been for Jeremiah Wright, I believe, he would have never given a speech on race. Deval Patrick wanted to give a speech on race. David Plouffe ran his campaign, and it didn't happen. Uh, but there also was no trigger that forced it. So Jeremiah Wright comes along. He gives a speech on race. He asks for a national dialogue on race, and then never talks about it again. Now, there's, there, there are some, there's some reasoning, some cold political reasoning that makes sense here. But I remember first being struck by that when I went to see him speak a year ago at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. The, the iconic pulpit where Martin Luther King preached, where, his, where Daddy King preached, and it was Martin Luther King's birthday. It was the Sunday before the holiday, and he goes there, and I think this is going to be, this is pre-Jeremiah Wright blowing up. I thought this is going to be a big speech. Instead, he didn't talk about race almost at all. He went out of his way to talk about unity and other larger themes, even though he was in a church full of black ladies in big hats who were happy that applaud him no matter what he said. Um, but he chose to lean against it, and he did it repeatedly throughout the campaign. So it was not an accident that in Invesco Field, if you go back and look at that 10-minute bio film that they ran to introduce him, you saw a lot about Kansas and very little about Kenya. And that was not done by accident either. He won, so maybe there's something brilliant about this, and he didn't win by denying that he was an African-American or rejecting it, but he decided to shift the focus. The, um, uh, you, uh, I, there was, you had a great quote from uh, Michael Eric Dyson that said it was more of a race straddle <laughs> that uh, had a wink uh, at uh, uh, black Americans while speaking to white Americans. And black Americans, by and large, were like, first of all, they're used to being winked at. Second of all... They kind of said, okay, you do what you need to do, and we'll hold you accountable later. That was, it, once, once black voters came on board, they were not instantly on board with this guy. They also didn't know who he was, and it wasn't until he won elections that black voters said, oh, maybe this will work. And what, and what, what, do you, what was the dynamic that propelled that? The dynamic was Hillary vote. Clinton. She was, she was holding probably a third of the yeah. African-American vote before Iowa well, and, and the dynamic was Bill Clinton. I mean, there was there is no question there was great affection, a deep well of affection in the African-American community for Bill Clinton. I mean, John Lewis is the perfect example. John Lewis was um, a, a staunch Clinton supporter for a big chunk of the primary season. He told me a story about how he was home shopping in Atlanta, pushing a shopping cart. The idea of John Lewis shopping for groceries, that's just wrong. But... He's pushing his shopping cart down the aisle, and his mobile phone goes off, as he described it. And it's Bill Clinton, on the other hand, saying, John, I need you. I'm, I do a terrible Clinton. John, <laughs> John, I need you here in South Carolina. At which point he went and got on a plane and flew to South Carolina to help him out. And you remember South Carolina yeah. was a very fraught uh, campaign at that point. But a couple of months later, you know, he began to think to himself he was going to be on the wrong side of history. And it bugged him. It bugged him so much that he switched and went the other way. He was kind of the perfect in one body example of that conflict that was building in the community, not only old versus young, but also John Lewis, who was 23 years old when he stood at the March in Washington at the Lincoln Monument. And he knew what it was like to be a young guy breaking through when people were telling you no. So he just wanted to be in the right place. The, the, uh, what do you, in the end of the day, what do you think the effect of the right speech was? Did it just park it? The race, the race issue? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, it just parked it. He, it had to be diffused because they, they really feared it was sinking, the, that Je Jeremiah Wright was sinking the campaign. And they were probably not far off. It was something that had to be spoken to. It was something that you sensed that 
the president had in his hip pocket and knew at some point maybe he'd have to talk about it in this kind of way. Um, and, and so it, to the extent that Jeremiah Wright was eventually neutralized, that speech had a lot to do with it. But it was, at that point it was been there, done that, let's get back to the main highway. Right, right, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the, the dynamic with, with uh, you do a whole chapter on, on the uh, question, the dynamic between sexism, racism in, in, in American politics, which played out in the, in the context of the, of, of the primary. And we had the incident with uh, maybe a couple of incidents with, for example, the former vice presidential candidate, Jerry Ferraro, who yeah. kind of uh, uh, lost it. Uh, what's the... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it, uh, you and you explored in some depth. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting, I hadn't noticed it before I, I, I read the book, was that when voters were asked whether race mattered to them, mm -hmm. they voted against Obama. And when they the, were asked uh, when, whether when they, gender when mattered, voters said that right. that race mattered to them, they voted against Obama. Right. And when they said gender mattered to them, they voted for Hillary. Yeah. It was, race was almost always a negative draw, a negative issue, which is why they didn't like to talk about it. Gender was always a positive one, which is why, even though she started out not wanting to talk about it, when she was up against the wall, she did. Hillary Clinton was really interested in suddenly talking about her gender and the limitations of gender um, when she was having a hard time, because it always stirred up a positive. You saw what happened at the end of her campaign. The 18 million cracks in the glass ceiling was no small thing. I talked to a, a woman, an older woman activist, who said she was just heartbroken, even though she liked Obama fine, but she thought she'd never be able to dance at the inauguration of a woman president. It was an incredible well of emotion, but there was, this didn't just start with this campaign, this whole friction that Jerry Ferraro and Gloria Steinem kind of exacerbated. It went back to suffrage. It went back to the idea that black men got the right to vote before white women did. Now, it, gone, you know, it goes unremarked that the black men didn't get their rights enforced for some decades after that, but it remained a lingering piece of friction, which sprung to life with the slightest little blow. And a lot of women thought that Barack Obama was just another guy cutting in line. And so that exposed a whole different piece of friction, which I have to say, when I started out to write this chapter, I didn't see coming. I was going to write a chapter about where are black women in, where are the black women breakthroughs, and failing to find many, by the way, <laughs> I, uh, which we'll get to if you like. <laughs> yeah. but, but I ended up on this other gender path, which was at that moment in this campaign so far more compelling and told so many more stories. And, and, and there were so lot of, it went beyond just this campaign as well. Well, you, I mean, you, you do come back and, and talk about some promising uh, mm -hmm. younger black women who are in elective office and are seeking higher office. But you also note that... that it's been a tougher road for black women. What else you, is new? Yeah. You, <laughs> you, you, you quote a, stu uh, a study from one of our competitors, the Brookings Institution, uh, uh, arguing, arguing that there's an ambition gap amongst women for, uh, for uh, running for political office. Instinctively, that... I would resist that notion, except yeah. this. I did. I, I know. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. I looked really hard, really hard, trying to find the equivalent black women breakthroughs, the people who are, women who are breaking through as mayors, governors, um, and, and, and broad leaders under the age of 50. 
and I realized that many of the African-American women in Congress, for instance, were over the age of 50. Many women leaders in general in big, big jobs are over the... Nancy Pelosi was a grandmother by the time she became Speaker of the House. Now, as I talked to people, I began to realize it was the same old set of choices that women have to make, and it's only exacerbated for black women, which is... Uh, the mayor of Atlanta said to me, she's in her 60s when she became mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, and she had been the right-hand person for the previous two or three mayors but had never thought about running for mayor herself until they approached her and asked her to. And I asked her why. She said, I, I don't know. It just never occurred to me. She had to be asked. Breakthrough candidates don't wait to be asked. They forced their way onto the stage. I, I talked to the, the speaker pro tem of the Louisiana House, who's 39 years old, and just got married. She ran for Congress once, didn't get elected, and now she's thinking that she want to run again and she wants to have kids. Um, these are real. And so it's not an accident that women wait for, because we're just, we're, we're busy making trade-offs. What else is new? But they're busy making trade-offs, and as a result, there are not the same numbers of African-American women at the same level, at this age, as there are African-American men. One of the uh, whether whether true or not, there's I think a perception, at least in the political class, that there's that women have more to prove to get elected to executive positions I as opposed to true. legislative positions. I think that's true. But uh, it's it was also a dynamic, probably to some extent, that played out in the uh, uh, people observed it. Whether one could argue that there were different dynamic playing out with respect to uh, Senator Clinton in this race, particularly with her with respect to uh, where she was in Iraq. and Yeah, but and that's where the ambition gap argument kind of falls down if you, only, if you think of, of ambition in a narrow, I want to do it way. It's a question of you want to do it, and then what are you willing to give up to do it? That becomes the next piece about what ambition is. And, and there are just not as many women as there are men who are willing to give up what it takes to give up and to, to go and ask for money and ask for support in the blunt way that women have to do in order to break through. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about legacy politics. Oh yeah, <laughs> there. Uh, you you know you you note a number of people, Harold Ford. Uh, you you went through a list, Jesse Jackson, who you've already mentioned, uh, and others who have kind of gone uh, in in what has become now common in American politics. Just look at at the United States Senate, I guess, <laughs> and, and of of uh, hereditary politics. Right. Um, one of the things I, that struck me in, in reading that is, with perhaps the exception of Mark Mallory, uh, and, and there, there's future for people like Kendrick Meek, et cetera. Mm -hmm. None of those, the people that you highlight, have kind of quite gone past where their, where ah, their parents father were. had gotten. That's a good point. Maybe the members of Congress got to be members of Congress. They try for higher office. They, they, they uh, don't succeed. Is there Not something? yet. Not, Not yet. yet. I mean, it's an interesting point because it's, it's probably because we're only in the first generation of legacy politics. Uh, there, are, there are decades of Bushes and Gores and Tafts <laughs> who have risen and risen and each of them on each other's shoulders. But in the case of most of the legacy politicians, the, the sons and daughters of people who already were in office, they're just gotten to the next step. Uh, I think of, of Lacey, you're right, Lacey Clay, who's the son of William Clay, who was a who's a congressman from um, Missouri, he has his father's seat, what does he do next? Jesse Jackson, Jr., he has a congressional seat, which is more elected office yeah. than his father ever held. But the question is, does he then 
he wanted to be senator? Does he want to be governor? What's the next step for him? They're just at the point now, most of these legacy, legatees, who are at where they can aspire to the next step, and they're already in their 40s and 50s. Um, one of the other things you note is the, is the difference in uh, that there's a, a change in political attitudes amongst African Americans at the voter level, uh, particularly pronounced, I think, you're, it's, uh, you're citing joint center studies uh, amongst younger voters, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of a breadth of political uh, uh, ideological orientation. I uh, yeah, I would argue actually that there's a, almost a bigger generational than a racial shift here. Partly because, for instance, the, 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 the fathers and sons we were always talking about, and mothers and sons, in the case of the Meeks, they don't see the world quite the same way as their parents did, and they, neither do regular voters who are younger. They, for instance, uh, Lacey Clay said he wants to talk about school vouchers, and he his father agreed just enough to talk about it. <laughs> you know, this is something which would have been anathema to the old school, old line, first generation civil rights or elected official, black elected official. And that plays out on lots of levels, and including among voters, whereas, for instance, young voters are just not as hung up on race as their parents are. I have a 12-year-old godson who, when I said, look, we have a black president, he went, uh-huh, can I go play my video games now? <laughs> I mean, for him, it just wasn't unusual because he interacts and has friends across racial lines, and it just wasn't a, as big a deal. And so we're carrying around kind of the, the burden and the baggage of, what, of how we grew up thinking about race, and the next generation's already moved not completely past it because we're not post-racial. I don't want to get carried away here, but not interpreting it the same way. But African-Americans still vote 90-plus percent for Democratic candidates. That's true. And uh, I think part of it is because Republicans dropped the ball. They just elected Michael Steele to be the head of the RNC. I think that has almost nothing to do with race. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the Republican National Committee elected Michael Seale has absolutely nothing to do that's with I mean. his race. That's what I mean. Okay. That's what I mean. Does, it, does, the, does, uh, does somebody like Michael Steele open up the possibility that... That, um, that what? That Republicans will you know, find some ground on which to appeal to African-American voters? It's easy to forget. It wasn't that long ago that Republicans... Ken Melman actually did a pretty... pretty reasonable job of trying to actually... He did, and what happened? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the point. It wasn't that long ago that, re that Democrats, blacks were Republicans. You know, they, the, the children of Lincoln or whatever, they, they were Republicans. And what happened was the issue shifted. When the issue goes away from you, you go away. It's not about a matter of party identification. It's a matter of who was on the right side in the civil rights movement. Um, for a long time, it wasn't the Democrats. But when they, the Democrats shifted, then the black folks shifted with them. Same thing with Latinos. There was a big effort being made in the Republican Party to recruit Latinos and to broaden the tent until the immigration debate happened. The issue took them away, not just loyalty, blind race loyalty to a party. So to the extent that any party begins to speak to the issues that drive any minority group, I think they have a chance of getting the attention and the votes of those folks. Uh, that's a hopeful note. Um, yeah, I try to be hopeful. Give me, get, um, I'm going to open this up to the, to the audience here in a second, but you do a pretty good job of handicapping the, not the people who we haven't heard as much about. Uh, people in, in uh, you interviewed one tonight on the news hour, the, speak, the California Assembly Speaker. Uh, give us, handicap that, that I, generation may be the wrong expression, because yeah. some are a little bit older, some are a little yeah, bit Karen, younger. Yeah, Karen Bass, who's a speaker of, of the, 
California Assembly is 55 years old or Who something. Who should we be looking yeah, she, sure. she's, she's, she's worth watching, even though she claims she's, she's term limited and claims she's, uh, she's done. We'll see. Um, a lot of them, are, another person worth watching who I think is interesting to watch uh, is Kamala Harris. She's in her 40s. She's an attorney, uh, district attorney in uh, San Francisco and um, is now running for attorney general. So she's running for statewide office in California, and she's worth watching. Um, it's worth watching uh, Bukhari Sellers, who's a 23-year-old member of the House in South Carolina, whose father, uh, Cleveland Sellers, was a civil rights activist and was arrested in the, and, and helped plan the Orangeburg Massacre in South Carolina. Yet a generation later, his 23-year-old son says he goes around South Carolina and he doesn't see black houses and white houses, he sees poor houses. And he speaks the language of the breakthrough candidate as well and keep, is, makes you know, coy comments about the governor's office. So th they all s see this possibility and they're all worth watching. They won't all succeed, and some of them will have to fail before they succeed. But there's definitely a, a much deeper well out there than, the, than just Barack Obama. Some people like to think of Barack Obama as just a one-off. Oh, well, he was unique and special, and the timing was right, and the economy was terrible, and whatever. But if it were just him, in fact, a lot of these people were breaking through before we'd ever heard of Barack Obama. So something fundamental is shifting, and it's worth watching on all kinds of different levels. I, I find the mayors to be fascinating. The mayor of Buffalo, New York, who, you know, who knew there was a black mayor in Iowa City, you know, in Cincinnati and Columbus. And I, and that was, it was, the fact that all this has been happening without anything being remarked upon tells you something is going on that's worth documenting. Just since the book was published, I feel I have about 20 pages of updates uh -huh. now. Kendrick Meek is running for Senate. I mean, right. all these things have changed just in that time. There, there's uh, a lot of the uh, national... And, and one indictment, it should be said, but, you know. And one indictment. One, <laughs> one of the, uh, a lot of the national reporting is, is, is almost pushed Obama, President Obama out of this storyline by making him different in a different way. Well, he's president. Hawaii. He's kind of president. Well, he's president, but also his background is, is yeah. kind of fundamentally different than the African-American sure. experience, at least as, as a kid. Indonesia, Hawaii, etc. Right. But you didn't really do that in, in your book. You don't you don't comment well, much on I it. I kind of think people should be defined the way they want to be defined. One of one of the chapters, my favorite chapter probably in the book is the chapter about racial identity. Because people in the beginning remember asked whether Barack Obama was black enough. It should be said only black people said that. Uh, white people always said, Are you too black? <laughs> black people always said, Well well I don't understand. Is he what is he where did he come from? What's this Hawaii thing? The truth was, I, I kept hearing it so much, and I heard it so much from every single breakthrough candidate I talked to, who all had this question raised about him, that I finally started saying, what is at the root of it? And what was at the root of it, it turns out, is the same thing that's at the root of every question about every politician, which is, are you on my side? Are you going to sell out? Are you somebody who gets why we sent you there? Are you going to represent me? It's no different, that question, for anybody. But for, and, and once that question was answered, Black folks said, okay, fine. Um, but now, what I find, I've gotten, since the election, I get mail from, I got a piece of mail from a viewer saying, why do you keep calling him the black president? And why can't we just forget he's black? Well, first of all, I don't keep calling him the black <laughs> president. But second of all, they want to know, why, we, why can't we forget he's black? And I, and I countered by saying, why do we want to? You only would want to forget it if you consider black to be a negative characteristic. And so... My, and which actually 
shuts them up pretty well because they hadn't thought of it that way. Colorblindness doesn't exist. And if someone says they're colorblind, that means they don't see me. And just the, the, the difference is the color shouldn't be something that holds you back. It should be something that can define you, tell people what you are in a positive way. To talk about race in this country without talking about conflict and blame and guilt is something novel and different. And it's something we now have an opportunity to do. Okay, we're going to open things up. Uh, got one right in the front, and then we'll come back here. Go ahead. Hi, Gwen. I'm Jay Bonstingel from Columbia, Maryland, and thank you for your great work on PBS. I, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, breakthrough candidates benefit from portrayals in uh, movies and on television of characters that seem to lay a foundation like. for their candidacy. For example, the fictitious President Palmer on, of all things, Fox Television's 24. Did, did his character in any way, do you think, lead to a breakthrough uh, uh, that Obama well, took advantage of? I kind of make a distinction between fiction and reality, but not everyone does. There's actually a book that I'm reading now by Jabari Asim called What Obama Means. And in it, he makes the cultural connection between the, the ways in which we broke through in this country culturally and into people's living rooms and made them feel more comfortable about themselves, whether it's Bill Cosby or Michael Jordan or Denzel Washington. And then they look at this guy and you say, okay, I, I get that a little bit. I'm more comfortable with that difference. Um, that's not my thing. I, I tried to pretty much to deal with the reality of where America is. I mean, I understand, for instance, that Oprah Winfrey and I don't do the same thing for a living, but the fact that she is embraced makes it easier for people to embrace me. I, I do understand that. But I also think that when you're voting about your future and your children's future, that it's a different set of, set of, of realities. No one's thinking David Palmer when they go in the uh, voting booth. And I certainly hope not since David Palmer did not come to a good end. <laughs> uh, gentlemen in third row. Hi, Joe Jones with the Center for Urban Families in Baltimore. Uh, first of all, Gwen, congratulations on a stellar career in the book. John, no disrespect, but this venue is a little too small. MCI, Sunday next time. Uh, <laughs> Two-part question. Uh, one, and they don't have to do anything to do with one another, but the first one, this new guard of breakthrough African-American politicians, given some of the sentiments that uh, even Barack has expressed about the African-American uh, family, and particularly African-American males, as it relates to sticking in there with their children and families, what do you think the impact will be on this, this generation of young African-American males? And I say this from a personal standpoint. I'm a guy who, my oldest child, I had very little to do with while he was coming up because I had my own demons I had to fight through and I'm fortunate enough to be married and have a younger son who I've been there since day one so it's really personal for me mm -hmm. in that respect so your thoughts on that second uh, during the, the presidential campaign uh, and particularly after Barack was uh, became the Democratic nominee this old guard of African-American leadership was not well represented in terms of giving political commentary. And can you, at least that's my observation, and can you give any backs behind the scenes uh, in terms of politics as to why that did not occur? Uh, I, I, I'll take the first question, which is, it, it touches on something kind of interesting, which was there was a moment, which you will recall during the campaign, in which Jesse Jackson was captured saying mean things. <laughs> um, 
and but and and because of the language that he used, it got a lot of attention that he had said that Barack was talking down to black people. But what that lost in in what he had to say that day was he what he was actually trying, in artfully to say is that he felt that by going before black audiences and using those opportunities only to talk about the shortcomings in the black community, that he was uh, that he was abandoning a role that he could easily take on. The interesting thing is when I saw Obama speak at in audiences, like I saw him speak at a church convention in August, I guess, and he got up there and gave the speech about how we've got to pull ourselves together and the brothers got to pull up their pants and all that stuff, and the folks came to their feet and applauded. The conservative, church-going black folk who did not think that was a negative thing to say. So generally, his remarks, his kind of scolding remarks, were well received. The concern among some in black academia and some of and the Jesse Jacksons of the world was that he didn't, that he only did that in front of black audiences. That he didn't do it, didn't make this call for kind of cultural redemption in front of audiences that weren't black. So there, there, there remains a, a, a fair amount of quietly held skepticism among some black academics who are hanging back. My brother, who's a black academic, is sitting in the front row laughing at me. He says, what do you mean? But, the, but, the, but they're hanging back and thinking to themselves, what is he really going to do? So there's a little bit of, but they want him to succeed, so they're kind of sitting on it and waiting to see. The second question, remind me. Oh, the politics of who was comment commenting. You know, I have to say, I, I may a couple for my industry, even though I can't really speak for them all, but I'll speak for some of them. We're really lazy when it comes to getting people to talk about race. We're lazy. We go to the same, the reason why you, it felt like there was only two black leaders in the world is because that's all we called. One of the things I'm happy about doing in this book is exposing people to the fact there's a lot more folks out there. It doesn't take away from the people you hear from all the time, I don't think. But it does let you understand there's just a broader range of not only opinion, but thought that goes on and that is about race and is not about, as I said, about conflicts or guilt. I think that's important. And I think that that was part of where the ball gets dropped. When people realized that Barack Obama had a chance to become the world's first, pre the world's first president, <laughs> the nation's first black president, yeah, that wouldn't that be something? Um, all of a sudden, the world felt the world that felt way. That way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that um, that made a lot of people scramble to try to find voices which they hadn't bothered to cultivate heretofore. Back. Hi, my name is Janae Robertson. I'm with Common Cause. I'm actually from uh, UCLA. Um, at the end of the campaign, Ralph Nader made this comment about how Barack Obama doesn't represent black people. And um, I'm going to air out dirty laundry about UCLA campus, but there's a fight of you're not black enough if you come from the wider areas and you don't, don't associate with the ghetto and you don't have the stereotypical black identity. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering with the breakthrough candidates, is there that distance of I can define what is black and it doesn't have to be what society says is black and what is acceptable to be black? Yeah, there is. And, and, and it was, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking but funny at the same time that every single one of them told the same story. Michael Nutter, the mayor of Philadelphia, said, what do they, what do they mean by that? Am I supposed to wear my hat backwards and my pants down? What do, what do they mean? But the person who really caught me was Lisa Borders, who's a city council president in Atlanta, who said, you know what? I did everything they told me to do. I 
I had a child, I got married, I raised a child, I made that child a contributing member of society, I ran for office, I served in public service, I've done all the things they've told me to do, and now they tell me I'm not black enough? What's that about? And she said that during a debate when she was running for office and the place fell silent. The truth is, we've got to broaden out our notion about what anything is, our definitions. I mean, if there's something good about the idea of this biracial, multi, uh, multi-country raised person as president is that it broadens our notion of what anything is and it forces us to be more rigorous in our understanding of what we are because once again we're the ones challenging each other's authenticity. Uh, I don't know any black person of accomplishment who has not had people say you talk like a white girl don't you? Because I know I've had that and I know Michelle Obama has had it. I, so all you do is first of all let it roll off but second of all understand that we're, at a, we're in a position now if we begin to hear from more of these voices to redefine whatever that is. Because when people say you're not black enough, they almost always are reaching for the negative instead of the positive. Gentleman in the right behind you. Hi, Jim Lowen. I'm the author of the book Sundown Towns. I spent last week in a sundown county in Illinois. That's a county that does not allow African Americans to live in it as we speak. Uh, and that county, interestingly, voted 53-46 for Barack Obama, the exact same percentage uh, that the United States did. And I wonder if you have any comment about that. Isn't that an interesting thing? Trying to get him to go away. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that, you know, 58 million people or something voted for John McCain. Some percentage of those people voted for him because they liked him. Some percentage of them voted for him because they didn't like Barack Obama, and some percentage of that didn't want to vote for Barack Obama because he was black. We don't know how much, uh, but we do know that there remain some folks in this country who just are not there yet, to put it kindly. That's fine, and I think that was to be expected. Well, it's not fine, but it's to be expected, and we're, it's only 2009, and we're, we're still getting there. But when I hear numbers like that coming out of a sundown town, county, county, I find that I find that remarkable and promising and tells you something about how people will vote for self-interest even if race is a factor. We also know that over the course of 50 years, at least the way people answer a question, that 50% in 1958 said they wouldn't vote for a black president. Now, four, I think 4% say they, say, they, say they won't. Yeah. So I think attitudes are obviously changed. But gentlemen here. Hi, Larry Bivens with Gannett Washington Bureau. Um, Clinton, during his first term, I believe, initiated this year-long conversation on race that didn't seem to uh, generate a lot of conversation. And I don't think uh, he wrote the book that he was had said he would write at, uh, to culminate that. I'm just wondering if um, you think that that conversation is still needed and whether or not uh, it might happen under the Obama administration. Uh, full disclosure, Larry and I covered the Jesse Jackson campaign. We were one of those last people standing back in the day. Um, and so we spent a lot of time watching people say they're going to have conversations they never actually have. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that the conversation has to be had in the way that, you know, someone needs to sit down around the table. I mean, they tried that. Lord knows when they came up with the amended don't end it. You were in the White House then, weren't you, John? Amended don't end it. Mm -hmm. uh, Christopher Edley at the, at the Clinton White House. But the truth of the matter is it didn't 
kind of go anywhere past that. And I'm not sure it's a conversation that needs to be had around a big oval table anymore. It's a conversation which almost, while we weren't paying attention, Americans decided to have on their own. Um, perhaps by electing Barack Obama, perhaps by electing these other candidates, but having formal conversations where we declare the problem over or the problem solved or come up with a 10-point plan, I don't think the next generation after us has much patience for that. I, I barely have patience for it. Let's keep going then towards the back. I see a hand back there. Um, my name is Samuel Spires for the Dalton Daily Institute. And my question is, does the book address the potential proliferation of hate crimes and other racial issues stimulated by President Obama's victory? And if so, is there an office solution or means to deal with these issues? We, we don't address it in the book, partly because the book was done on, I mean, basically done on the day of the election. Um, I don't know, and I have not been monitoring, whether there has been a huge spate in hate crimes since he was elected. I do know there is certainly evident concerns at the White House about safety, and it, it, the security is, is crazier than it's ever been for a president. But I have, no, I have no reporting to back up why that is except surmise. Um, you know, we're not a, one of the reasons why I said, and I glanced off it earlier, about the notion of post-racial, um, I, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. I think as long, it doesn't take a whole lot of angry people in order to keep the hate crimes going and to make the numbers pretty bad. I remember once I mistakenly used the term post-racial or post-civil rights to, to Joseph Lowry, and he almost took my head off. And, uh, and, I, and I learned from that, A, not to use that term to him again, but also I learned that it was an important point he was making, which is we're not there yet. That as long as the levels of incarceration for black men remains abnormally high, that as long as Black people suffer disproportionately from a lack of access to health care, lack of access to housing, and hate crimes that were not there yet. So yes, the problems are still there. Yes, for sure, having a black president doesn't mean it's all over. And maybe some of it gets worse, and maybe some of it gets better. Let's keep going. Hi, my name is Angela Peoples. I work for the United States Student Association. And you mentioned that uh, young black women, these elected officials, have had sort of a tougher road to come through than the black males. Would you say that there's an additional breakthrough needed for um, black women to do more so on a, on a grander scale than um, the breakthrough candidates that you talk about in the book? Thank I you. I, I, I Thanks for your question. I think it has to be an individual one by one by one thing. There's not someone who's going to declare this is the year of the black woman. And if I, they do, that would ruin things. Because whenever I care for the year of the woman, women never fail to not get elected. I mean, it just never quite takes. But it has to be, there has to be, after a while, just a, a, an up, a, a, it's got to percolate from the bottom. It can't be dictated from the top that now this will be the year, these will be the candidates. Even though it should be said there are a lot of w women's groups who spend a lot of time recruiting women to run for office and have had some success. And it's worth noting and tracking what they're doing. They find that it should be said, it's not, not unimportant, that a lot of the women that they want to recruit are far more interested in public service and nonprofit realm than they are. If you go and look at the nonprofit realm, you will find a lot of women leaders, a lot of women who are running these organizations. They just don't want to be involved in elective politics. So I don't want to devalue the potential for female breakthroughs just in a different form of public service. And if you look at educational attainment and exactly. even economic attainment, you see the opposite. Exactly. Effect. Exactly. So it is, is something about politics and the decision <laughs> to run. Maybe something maybe about, they're really smart. Maybe something about the style of politics. Yeah. Too, the yeah. decision to run there. 
The lady up here. My name is Nandini Kuti. I'm an independent consultant. My question is, what implications do you think these numerous breakthroughs will have for the future of affirmative action in America? It's funny you should ask that question because I, was, I did a radio show yesterday in Minnesota where the minute the word affirmative action came up, the radio lines blew up and they never got to all the questions. For some reason, that still is a sore spot for a lot of people. There, um, what's his name? Affirmative action guy from California. Oh, Ward uh, Connerly. Connerly. Ward Connerly has taken great heart in the election of Barack Obama because he believes this means that this proves we no longer need affirmative action. Let's just blow the whole thing up. So there is a, there is a slightly, uh, a slowly growing school of thought among the Abigail and Stephen Thurnstrom world who always thought affirmative action was a bad idea, that this is a perfect example why we don't need to do it anymore. Um, the interesting thing is Barack Obama has himself opened that door to that debate a little bit by suggesting, as he did on ABC during the campaign, that he doesn't know if affirmative action necessarily should apply to children who are advantaged like his daughters. Once you open up the door to that conversation, then you open up the whole idea about what is affirmative action based on. Is it based on race or is it based on economic status? And that's a debate we haven't even begun to have because people are so, it's such a hot button. I don't know whether a black president is going to change the way that debate sorts out because it seems that the arguments pretty much remain the same. But he can certainly set, he can certainly set the uh, standard for how the debate plays out. We'll take one more and then I'm going to, uh, we'll take one, two, we'll take one over there and then I'm going to have one last one. Go ahead. Uh, yes, good evening. My name is William Stokes. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is that it matters not whether or not a, a politician is black or white or any other ethnic group. Uh, there are conditions that exist in America that require American citizens to be more responsive to uh, what government is doing. And uh, one of the things that I'm, I guess my question would be, uh, have you uh, ran across uh, people being having, having those kind of related concerns as it relates to government and the fact of the, because to me the biggest problem in government, I mean the biggest problem in our country right now is the citizens of the country because the government is, is doing basically whatever it wants to do. And one of the things that came to my mind uh, looking at the condition, I mean the situation with the stimulus package and how politicians and, and parties responded to that to me, which is uh, ridiculous. You know, an American citizen, uh, I don't know, I'm just wondering about that. I, I find that uh, I've gotten a lot of questions as I've gone around the country talking about this book, from uh, questions that I can't answer, basically, about whether Barack Obama's election is going to harness this new, uh, uh, is going to harness the excitement and the engagement that it managed to cultivate during the campaign. And I can assure you they're working on trying to figure out how. they got all these email addresses. They want to figure out how to turn it into a movement. But the question is whether people really mean it when they say, I want to be there. I'm just waiting to be asked. Because there's a lot to be excited about getting a, a you know, Shepard Ferry poster and jumping up and down in a rally. It's another thing when someone asks you to do something with that over a sustained period of time. If it happens, if they can find a way to harness it, it will take us to a new place where actually you can use the... You, it can work both ways. You can use the voices of the people who support you to get to cut through some of the morass in Washington. But conversely, it can also they can also begin to set the agenda theoretically. I'm not. I'm ne we've never seen it happen before, so I don't know if it'll work. But I know they're thinking about how to make it work. 
Go ahead. Uh, uh, my name is Karen Miller. I'm with American Urban Radio Networks. Um, question for you. Thank you so much for it. This is totally enlightening tonight. But um, how do you feel like President Obama's election um, is going to affect historical um, agencies in terms of like the NAACP or even the Congressional Black Caucus, where those were the places that people really looked for leadership in the African American community? Now, are they going to be looking to President Obama? Are, is there a shift that's been caused with that, if you could talk a lot about that? I think, I think President Obama has made it pretty clear that he plans to be the President of the United States, not the President of Black America. So if that's true, there's certainly plenty of room still for traditional civil rights or, or black-oriented organizations to flourish if they take care of themselves and find out what their mission is. Just as American politics has been struggling to redefine itself, depending on who is now in charge, who's actually casting votes, whether young people, whether they're Twittering, whether it's, it's, it's a technology-driven revolution or not, just as that has changed the way we define politics, so do a lot of organizations, and not just civil rights organizations, have to define how they're serving the people they speak for, they say they speak for. So I, I don't, and, I, and, and I don't think that actually has a lot to do with Barack Obama's ascension. I don't think that he, his having a black president will either make the need for the NAACP, for instance, more, make it more relevant or make it less relevant. Um, they, that's for them to try to figure out. And it's something, as you know, they've been struggling with for some years. So I want to conclude by reading a quote from Cory Booker, who found that it was probably harder to actually govern than even yes, to run, did. run to be mayor of Newark. And, and you quote him saying, I've realized that the biggest, most important challenge is not to change myself, but to be myself, to have the courage to live my truth. This is integrity. This is the challenge of every single day and living in accordance to your highest values, to your highest ideals no matter how insane that might seem or where that might take you. Now, Newark's a pretty insane place, but America's a pretty insane place yeah. right now. So you want to give us a scorecard on how Barack Obama's doing after four weeks? And <laughs> four whole <laughs> weeks. And four whole I keep reminding people. It's been four weeks, people. Give him a minute to find his way around. Um, well, I, I, it, it's a, is it a good admonition? It's, it's a lovely thing, to this idea of living your truth. It doesn't usually coincide well with politics. Hard nose, how do you get elected and stay elected politics. Um, one of the things I, I love the most about Cory Booker is he, he could go on these flights of rhetorical excellence, <laughs> but then he would come back and some guy would He's be sitting from the North Ward of Newark saying, you got to deal with me. And, and that's what they all have to figure out. And it's what Barack Obama figured out, by the way, when he went up to the Hill, met with the House Republicans. They all asked for his autograph. <laughs> And then they voted against him to a woman and man. Um, they were saying, yeah, now you got to deal with me. So, you know, change is lovely. Hope is wonderful. But in the end, you still got to deal with the situation as it is. Something he is figuring out, which is why I think he's, today he's in Denver, and tomorrow he's in everywhere but Washington, because he's figured out campaigning sometimes works a little bit better than trying to change things right away here in Washington. So it's going to be, I'm putting on my seatbelt. It's going to be fun to watch. Well, uh, this is a great book. I want you to buy it. Gwen's going to sign it uh, if, you, if you have copies of the book. And uh, just I want to thank you for just a wonderful conversation. Thank you, John. And really for adding so much to our understanding of this. Thank, thank you, you John.